Hi, I'm Carissa Schlott. And I am Sharice Schlott. Welcome to Between Between Us, a podcast that highlights our relationship as sisters, providing a safe space to share our stories. These conversations highlight unity and connection, the through lines that connect all of us as human beings. Before we dive in, we would like to highlight that the views expressed in each episode are a product of our own research and experiences. Our opinions are not representative of any professional affiliations we may have. Episode 8. Mental Health Matters. I love you. Hello, everyone. I've missed you. We've missed you. It's been quite a while. It has. And what's been going on? Unfortunately, I have been unwell. I ended up catching the mumps of all things. I'm not sure where. No, despite being vaccinated as children and again recently as an adult, somehow the mumps are apparently a thing. Yep. And then after that, I caught a cold. I had a good solid 15 days of not feeling well. So we were not able to come together. Oh, but I think the antidote for whenever somebody is not feeling well are rest and play. And I'm so glad that you're feeling better. Yes. It's nice to be back on my feet. And it's timely that we're coming together today because it is... World Mental Health Day. And I'm actually representing with my Mental Health Matters t-shirt. Yes, and we're cozied into Sharice's cute little recording studio with blankets. And I have a pink toucan today. We had our first snowfall last night. So I guess that means fall is coming to an end and winter is upon us. Winter is not coming. It is here. (laughs) As a nod to... Game of Thrones. Yes. I miss that show. Me too. So in the spirit of this day, it might be appropriate to delve into our own mental health challenges. We delved into some of our challenges in episode one. And at 16, I was diagnosed with anorexia nervosa. As I was doing outpatient treatment, it was considered somewhat effective to put people on antidepressants because it helped with the invasive and obsessive thoughts. So I then started an antidepressant, Prozac, and I've been on some version of antidepressant ever since. Yeah. And can you remember as a child, like, do you think that you struggled with depression or anxiety long before the eating disorder? Anxiety, definitely. I was a very anxious, nervous child. Like even every morning before school, I would feel sick to my stomach because I was anxious about whatever the day could bring. And especially if it was related to anything academic, like if there was an exam, I felt nauseous. So I was basically sick every day. I can even remember like before figure skating carnivals or competitions, like you would just wake up and be a a wreck, a ball of nerves. Yes. And despite like we tried doing different mindful activities, like there was a a video recording, which was probably a cassette that we listened to and where we had to like tense and release different parts of our body. I can remember doing that and thinking, this isn't really helping me. (laughs) Yeah. Progressive muscle relaxation. (laughs) It helped me fall asleep at night. So that I did. Yeah. It was a cassette. So I did listen to it at night to fall asleep. But yes, I would say anxiety was pretty prevalent Mm -hmm. up until the eating disorder. Yeah. And as we have discussed on, on the first episode, I also struggled with two eating disorders anorexia and bulimia. And I don't know, I do think there was probably, that was 
more the coping mechanism for the underlying issues that were there. Like I think I also struggled with probably a bit more moderate levels of anxiety and and depression came later after immense struggle. And then it's almost this, this cycle of like when I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease where I would be anxious about getting sick to the point that I would map out in the entire city where all of the washrooms were, what the next day would look like, what would happen at work. Like I was constantly worrying about what was going to come in the future. And then all of that anxiety, I'm sure, contributed or made the, the Crohn's symptoms even that more um, challenging, compounded the problem. And then I would get sick and then I would be depressed about being sick. <laughs> so, And then it was just a vicious cycle that continued for, for several years. But I feel very fortunate that... I have been able to manage my anxiety and mental health for the most part with things like therapy and eating well and moving my body or getting into nature as much as possible, getting as much sunlight as possible. It's also been helpful for me. But that's not to say that medication isn't also a fantastic option and for some, I think, necessary and extremely helpful. Yeah, and for myself, I've resigned to the idea that I may need medication for the rest of my life. I can't say that definitively, mm-hmm. but for the time being, I know it is absolutely necessary. I've had many moments of major depressive disorder throughout my life, and it obviously usually follows bigger life events, bigger challenges. Mm-hmm. But even the nature of our depression or our mental health challenges and how we move through them or pass them is very different as we were discussing this last night. Yeah. So can you explain like when you're in a state of depression, what does that feel like for you? So mine is very bleak and dark. I cannot see beyond the next moment. I'm only in this moment of immense pain. And in some ways it's longing for that pain to end because it feels somewhat unbearable. I can't There's no hope there because I can't see a future moment. Right. So what do you cling to? Like, what's the thought that pulls you a little bit out of it? The only sense of neutral comfort I have is knowing that at some point it will pass. Mm. That this too shall pass. Yes. Hopefully. And (laughs) and sometimes it's lingered for weeks on end. So... Mm -hmm. And especially if you're in a, a major depression, that can last for who knows, like months. Right. But I think I have learned that I just have to honor that state that I'm in. I, there's no doing to get out of that state. There is no clinging to hope. There is just existing in it. It's just being. Yes. And not in fact, trying to do, not like trying to use positive psychology to will yourself out. Yes. And in fact, if I do that, it worsens my depression or prolongs it because yeah. then I feel like I'm dishonoring myself or I'm expending energy where I don't have any to mm. expend. Yeah. And so for your deeper times, how did you process and move through that? I think for me, it's also a bit of a surrender, like having to surrender to it. The depression is often there for me as a signal of something I need to let go of or accept or kind of grieve or lose. And it's hard because I'm such an optimist by nature. It's hard for me to even remember what depression feels like because even now thinking about it, like I always, I can always see past 
the day. So I can accept, okay, today is a day that I'm feeling depressed and dark and it feels hopeless, but I know this will get better. Like I know, I almost view it as like, okay, today is is a day of rest and that allows me to refuel my tank or to build me up so that in the days and weeks to come, I have this to draw upon. So I can almost see the positive in it, even mm-hmm. when it's happening, um, which is probably partly why I've been able to to manage my mental health without needing medication, because even in those dark times, I still have ways I can cope through it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like my brain is wired in a way that allows me to pull myself out. Yes, absolutely. That makes sense. And also the fact that you can see past that situation and it's maybe just having enough of a vision past that gives you even a little bit of room to move within it if yes. that makes sense yes because I feel like I have absolutely nowhere to go like I yes. there's no there's not a single avenue that I can get out of that I think that's almost the definition of depression is like that stuck mm-hmm. feeling like that you're just stuck there there's and there's no hope and there's no light Yes. And then I think even after that phase where I there's no doing and no no existing, really no being, sometimes then I have a lingering numbness or nothingness mm-hmm. that that follows me for days. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And are you open to sharing what do you think spurred on the most recent depression? Mm. Yes. So well, a lot has been happening in my life. Actually, before I got sick, my relationship ended. And it had been a challenge for about six months, and I was attributing it to mental health challenges for my partner, and then later found out there was also addiction, or there's also substance use there that I wasn't aware of. And so it made sense, and almost in some way was validating because I I felt a little bit crazy that I was making situations up where I was catastrophizing what was happening. Mm -hmm. So just processing that and the aftermath of the loss of companionship. Yeah. And how addiction affects more people than just the addict. Yes. Yes. Right. Like the ripple effects that addiction has. And I'd like to point out like just the irony of, and the beauty in you sharing that of Sharice is an addiction's therapist and addictions counselor. She specializes in this. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think this is a part of the of the addict behavior as well, where there's a, a hiding and a wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. You intuitively knew that he was struggling. But it. didn't just didn't know the nature of the struggle. Exactly. But everything your intuition knew yes. um, that something was was going on. And I I really admire and respect that you tried to work through it and you and you were there for him in every way that you could be. Mm-hmm. And now he's on a, a path to his own healing. Yeah. And I guess for the listeners, I can tell you that I, I wasn't always cognitively aware of what was going on, but my body was sensing what was going on. So I ended up being in a state of hypervigilance mm-hmm. where I was very jumpy. I was feeling wary in the presence of this person. And I attributed it to my own trauma. And and that was a symptom of it. But it was just interesting to note in hindsight that my body was actually picking up on the behavior without me always being consciously aware of that. Yeah, you didn't feel safe. Yes. And it started probably about at the onset of use. 
Yeah. Which is also fascinating. Yeah. You knew. Your body knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then shortly thereafter, probably just because of the very, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was like a high demand stress. It was just a low grade chronic stress for me in that situation. And I think that's also a testament to just being in more of a stable self or a stable position within myself. But that led to getting sick physically, Mm -hmm. which also makes sense because stress is the number one trigger. So I know I would venture to say that stress is at the root cause of most of the physical lack of well-beings in our bodies. Like Mm -hmm. stress amplifies everything. Absolutely. This is how I always view it. It's like we have the genetic predisposition Mm -hmm. and the stress is just the trigger of that. Yes. And the other thing I wanted to note is that our stress receptors are in our stomach, Hmm. which is also the vagal nerve connection. But it's just so intricately linked between body and mind. Yes. And so the fact that our body holds things and carries things and feels things makes absolute sense. It sure does. And that was, I think, in all honesty, probably at the root of my Crohn's disease, which is centered around digestion in the stomach area. I think for me, from an emotional standpoint, I had always swallowed things inside and not used my voice and not stood up for myself. And that, I think, in all honesty, contributed to my stomach issues. <laughs> because once once I was brave enough to get out of those situations, a lot of the physical pain started to subside. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's just interesting in our family, there's predominantly a lot of gut issues. And yes. It makes sense because we're there's many of us that are big feelers. Yep. Highly intuitive. Very empathic. And yes, ailments in the stomach makes complete sense because that's exactly where the receptors are feeling everything. And it's fascinating. Like the next time that you have physical pain somewhere, I would encourage you to, to Google like whatever the area of the pain is, and then put the word spiritual behind it. So as an example, there was a a time when I had strep throat, I think three or four or five times all within one year. And if you Google like throat, (laughs) throat issues, spiritual meaning, it'll often give you signs of things outside of the physical ailments as a map to what some of the underlying issues or things you maybe haven't processed are. I know for me in that instance, it was I wasn't using my voice. It's very interconnected. And for those that are really familiar with any chronic health issues, it's almost the chicken or the egg scenario with, mm-hmm. is it the health that the health issues or challenges that then leads to the emotional affect or the emotional affect come first? But anyways, they're intricately connected. Yes, I think there's we're just starting to see research that's being done on this inter like this interconnectedness. Yeah. But it's something that I've experienced myself and know to be true. Let's maybe dive into mental health overall. I think it's a topic that we're discussing more and more in society, which is is great because so much of my struggle was around shame with the mental health of of trying to conceal it and hide it. Um, and so I think one of the most powerful ways to help reduce that stigma is in sharing and in sharing our stories about mental health. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious, how what percentage of the population would you guess struggles with mental health? I would say every single human. Wow. I th- Every single human, because 
it's it's all in a continuum. Mm. But there's no person on this planet that doesn't have stress in their life, that doesn't have an adverse situation, that doesn't have a little T trauma or a big T trauma. It's it's almost an aspect of being human. Wow. I don't know what I was expecting you to say. I think I was thinking like maybe something statistical, like, well, one in four. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you're right. Like at some point in our lives, likely every one of us will, will experience a mental health challenge. Mm-hmm. We are emotional beings. We are emotional beings having a human experience. We are not human beings having an emotional experience. Yes. Yes. And what if anxiety and depression weren't meant to be vanquished? Mm. Like what if mental illness actually meant that we're awake and paying attention? Sometimes I feel that way, but historically even or in communities that live in very traditional ways, often those with mental illness become the facilitators to the spiritual world. A lot of them are seers or healers. They're almost revered in a very different way than our Westerner developed society views people with mental illness. We do the opposite. It's isolated and um, penalized to some extent. Yeah. But I don't think that's true in every culture. And I do think just as, like I've always spoken about, there's a light and shadow aspect of even having mental illness, even experiencing a situation. There's always a light and shadow aspect in that. Yeah. And I do want to note that just like mental health is on a continuum of severity, that also our capacity to feel emotions lays on a continuum as well. And we were also discussing this earlier, how because I have a more depressive nature or I live in a more negativity state, I don't think I feel joy and pleasure to the same extent that maybe Carissa would. Yeah, I think like a visualization that helps me is like, I think by by nature or where you're at on the continuum, you're probably more like Eeyore. Yes. And I'm a bit more like Tigger. Like I can even recall when I went to see my my doctor for my annual checkup and it was during the winter months, which generally for me, it's also a bit seasonal when my depression comes. And I remember saying like, I, I have some concerns that I'm, I've been experiencing some depression. And so he, he had me complete an anxiety and depression screening and ironically, the anxiety scored like four times higher than the depression, even though I had come to him with my concerns about depression. So mm-hmm. I think I'm probably a bit more anxious in nature and probably farther up that continuum. But I can also pull myself out of the Eeyore mm-hmm. and your with natural your anxiety, state. though, too. Right. Yes. So they do feed into each yes. other. And that's what can be tricky. Yeah. Good yeah. point. But I'm actually really, really impressed that your doctor did a screen. Mm. That is very impressive. I can give you my example of going into emergency with mumps. Uh, I was having head pain, obviously severe pain because I was completely swollen in my jaw, which was causing some delirium and confusion. And I was told that I was having a panic attack. Hmm. And again, I presented no symptoms or I guess no, there was no nothing visible that I was panicking. Anything that was like a bit of a bias because of your mental yes, health Yes, they looked struggles? at the prescriptions I was on. They saw I was on Wellbutrin. And they thought, oh, she has anxiety, not knowing my history at all. Mm. I'm on Wellbutrin because it has a little bit more of a stimulating effect, which is helpful because it gives me more energy. I'm not on it necessarily to treat anxiety. It 
you know, it has a double edge. Anyways, right. so there was an assumption that I was having a panic attack and that this was a construction of my mind and, but was not even asked if that was a fit for me. Right. And not even knowing even that my profession is in the mental health realm. Mm -hmm. And then next thing I know, they're coming, the nurse is coming into the room and saying, here's your clonazepam, your Ativan. Yeah. And I was like, what is this for? Wow. And so that, that's been something that's even difficult for me, that just because something's not explained physically, that it's assumed to be a mental issue. Right. So that's just going back to kudos to your doctor for even doing a screen. Yeah. And I guess something else that I have learned in my life is taking ownership for my health. So if my doctor hadn't done a screen... And thankfully, I wasn't in such a state that I couldn't have advocated for myself, I guess. But if you go into the doctor because something isn't right and they kind of dismiss you or it doesn't feel like it's they're fully listening, the, the importance of advocating for yourself, like, no, I don't think that's actually right. Or no, I'm not leaving this office until you give me a screen or whatever it is. But I think that's there's there's a, an inherent power dynamic that doctors are somehow supposed to know what's best for us mm -hmm. because of and they are extremely educated and they're um, this is in, in no way a criticism of of anybody in the health profession like I think no. they are everyday heroes and what I'm saying is don't let that professional guidance override your own intuition about what you know is right for you and your body because only you know what's best well and I would say even if you can't advocate for yourself, because a lot of times when you're sick, that's not possible, then bring somebody with you who can. Yes. And that's a perfect example, because in that said emergency situation, I was at the point that I was like, whatever, give me anything. I feel really terrible. And so I was almost going to take the clonazepam. And thankfully, mom, our mother was with me. And she said, no, I don't feel right about that, because I was not in a state to like really make a good decision anyways. Like I was delirious. It's <laughs> a great point. So, and if you can't, if you're not well enough to advocate for yourself of bringing somebody who can advocate for you. Yeah. And hopefully you don't have the plight of our generation, which is isolation mm -hmm. and, and loneliness. So I hope that you have someone yeah. on your team. Because this is your area of expertise with the mental health component like, what would you recommend for anybody who has struggled or is struggling with mental mental health issues? I know reaching out for help is the hardest thing. And it's funny because that is the only way to, to move out of it. Mm -hmm. But I would suggest, like, I guess it's a good start to talk to your family physician. But I would say get a referral to someone who has a background in mental health, or if you want it, if you're considering going on medication, meet a psychiatrist. Don't let your family doctor decide what medication is best for you. Yeah. So seek out therapy. Yes. I know for me, moving my body, I, I tend to want to just go into a cocoon when I'm struggling. And yet I know what's best for me is getting outside and going for a walk or a run or finding some way to move my body. Yes. Um, I think my kids also are are good for me. Uh, in that children just keep you so present and almost you don't have time to think about uh, <laughs> or dwell on, I guess. Yourself. Something that's, yeah, yourself, which is a blessing and a curse. Mm -hmm. um, but, they, but my kids also, I think, do help me help keep me present and pull me out of 
cycles of anxiety or depression. Yeah. And that's one of actually the counterintuitive or one of the, I guess, strategies. So one of them is doing things, acts of service, Mm. because that in turn does feed your mental health, like your self-esteem, whatever, your concept of self. But it's hard when you're in those moments of unwellness because you have a lack of energy and ambition to do it. So, but that is something that is supposed to counter or be a benefit to mental health. That's so powerful. Yes. Because I mean, giving feels good, even if it's like, even if you don't have enough energy to go out and clean up all the garbage in your neighborhood or whatever, doing something simple, like even writing a card to say thank you to somebody that you love or like doing something small, even as an act of of service for somebody else, I think is so powerful. I love that. Yeah. And it, and again, it seems counterintuitive because you're usually at the point when you're in that state of burnout and you're feeling like everyone has taken from you, whatever that situation is, yeah. you feel in a deficit and what you feel like you need is somebody to give back to you. And so I know it sounds really challenging, but, and I, and I say, still honor yourself if it feels not like the right thing to do, or if it's going to be reaching out to someone toxic, then that's also not a good decision to make. But, and I think there's also something too, like there, if you, if you are still enough to hear what the longing is for, like sometimes for me, it's a longing for connection or it's a longing for friendship. And so something that's worked well for me is giving that, giving to something, to somebody else, what it is that I need. So I'll give an example of when I was at home with two little kids, what, one 18 months, a newborn nursing around the clock, <laughs> I was feeling like a sadness and a, like I was missing out on on life and my friends were all excelling in their careers and I was feeling a bit stuck and, and, and isolated, I think. And so something that I, I did is I started every month sending out um, a bouquet of flowers to a different friend to say, I miss you and I admire you and here's why I think you're so wonderful and why I value your friendship. I did it as a woman crush Wednesday and in doing that, it filled up the the void that I was feeling, mm-hmm. um, giving to others what it is that I was wanting for myself. Yeah, and and then facilitating that that feeling of connection. Yes. The other point I think that really hinders people from reaching out is they don't want to be a burden. Mm. And especially when you're in a bad place, there's this assumption that you're going to infect the person that you reach out to. And what is that? I've never felt that. That I, I guess that for me is also the spin of depression because it's not only saying like life is terrible. It's also saying you're not worthy of that. Uh, you're not worthy of someone else's time. And if you take that time, you're going to make it worse for them. Or you're making it worse for somebody else because you're taking up that time. Yeah, in, exactly. In oh, you're going to drag them down. But I don't think, like I always say this, okay, if I was on the other side of, of that, if I was the friend in my friend was reaching out to me, I would just be so happy that they had the courage to reset and capacity to reach out to me because to know that they would be suffering alone is is tragic. Yeah, I'm just, I want to stop here and say this out loud. You are not a burden. Like anybody that reaches out to me for anything, it almost, it fills me up. It's, it's the, it's the opposite of of how it feels to be a burden. It's like, uh, ah, I see you. Thank you for coming to me. Like, it's such a sign of of love and of safety for somebody to come to you with something that they're struggling with. So I wanted to say that out loud. Mm-hmm. You are not a burden. And often this is really 
rooted in our childhood experiences. So whether you're getting that societal, societally or culturally that it's not okay to feel, it's not okay to express your feelings, it's not okay to take up space. Some people have experienced that within their own family system. Some it's on a broader scale. And so I think just knowing that it's coming from a script that might not be serving you. Right. And it's not necessarily applicable in the now. Right. And do you think it's also helpful to like kind of stop and laugh at yourself? I would love for you to share with the listeners the story of your tree trimming this week. <laughs> yes. So for those who don't know me, I also have some obsessive compulsive tendencies. This shows up when I'm grocery shopping. I have to buy at least two, two. of everything. And two of everything. Yes, because I'm I always have this fear I'm going to run out. So that's that that is just one example. But I decided I was going to trim my tree before winter and as the leaves were falling off. And we have a green bin in my community, which is excellent. But the green bin doesn't actually hold that much. And I trimmed a lot of branches off the tree. And that only took probably about 15 minutes. But what took me two hours was cutting up the branches into the smallest pieces so that all of them would fit into my green bin. And I noticed as I was about halfway done that it was almost full. And then I said, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to cut things even smaller. <laughs> and so here I was outside of my house dismantling every branch and putting it into my green bin. And then sometimes even chopping in my green bin because I was worried that the rest wasn't going to fit. <laughs> I can just picture you yeah. with your... By the way, Trimmers? this is not like some giant professional hedging tool. Like it's literally like a large pair of scissors. You've been there chopping <laughs> in the bin, trying to make the leaves and sticks into smaller pieces. Yes, and I just I would we almost peed ourselves laughing last night about it. And I went and showed Chris in my green bin. <laughs> and I just thought, how insane would it be for my neighbors to all be witnessing me doing that and to be like, what is she doing? Like two hours out there? I know. And even like mid-activity to kind of step outside of yourself and like laugh at yourself, right? Like, why am I cutting, why am I spending two hours of my time cutting twigs into smaller pieces? <laughs> but this is also part of the compulsion where once I start that, I cannot stop it. Like I couldn't right. just leave that there or I couldn't just do it a different way. I have to complete that in the same way that I began. <laughs> And right. so, uh, yes, it, it's at my own expense. <laughs> and for the entertainment of others. Yes. So I hope that brightens your day to know that there's all these extra levels of crazy within me. So <laughs> Within all of us, yes. by the way. And that's what makes people fun and interesting and like, yeah, quirky. I don't know, quirky, exactly. Well, what's your, like, Krista gets a little bit manic at times with cleaning. Yeah, once I start cleaning, so I, I almost go into this manic state. And this is also partly why I've been successful at work is because I can get into this, like, this next level of doing where I am, like, extremely tuned in and my brain can operate extremely quickly. Not a healthy state to be in for long periods of time, but this happens to me when I start cleaning. Once I start cleaning, I cannot stop until everything in the house is clean. And I and I no longer do it in a, any kind of rational order. Like mm -hmm. I'll start I'll be starting cleaning the countertops, but then I'll notice that there was some some splash on the backsplash and so then I start obsessively cleaning that. And then I notice that there's fruit flies, and so then I have to start a fruit a fruit fly trap. And then like it it doesn't happen and you're like I'm going to clean the kitchen and then I'm going to clean the living room. 
I just start and I can't stop until I fix or clean every single thing that I see. Um, so my husband very wisely uh, over the past couple of years has hired a cleaning company for our house so that I do not get into said manic state and we can actually enjoy our time off together as a family. Yeah, and I resonate with that entirely too because I do not clean in in an organized manner either. It's exactly that same thing. And then this also explains why I'm terrible with time management. <laughs> because I get so lost and engrossed in whatever situation that needs to be handled or taken care of that I completely lose track of time or I completely underestimate the amount of time something is going to take. Yeah. And there seems to be something whenever I'm going to leave the door or walk out the door that there's just one more thing I can do that I have time for. And so then you do hence, <laughs> I am five minutes late everywhere I go. <laughs> and so I apologize if you've been at the end of that. Yeah, and I want to point out, like, I know that the, the time thing is important for some people and it feels almost like a... Disrespect. A disrespect or a betrayal of their time that one is late. But just to take a step back and be empathetic and thoughtful to... Maybe there was something going on for that person that is the reason that they're five minutes late. Yes. And and please know that it's not me disrespecting you. No. It's just a complete lack of my ability to uh, uh, like estimate and organize myself in a timely manner. And there was no ill intent. Like no. you never ever intend to be late or to no. hurt anybody that, uh, yeah. No, not at all. But being chronically late has been... Something, I think it's been there since as long as we were children because the bus had to wait for us every day. Yeah, I'm the same. Yeah. I'm getting better, I think, as I'm getting older, probably partly because having children means that I'm responsible for other people's time as well as my own time. But yeah, it's still, still for me, it's like an, I'm always optimistic. I'm over always overly optimistic that I can do one more thing mm-hmm. and still make it on time. So I'm just always like, oh, no, I have time to, to fit in a call with that person that really yes. needs to talk to me. And then I'll go to the other thing. And so then inevitably, I'm just constantly always running tight. Yes, I, the exact same thing. I, I even underestimate when I'm leaving that it takes time to like get my dogs in the kennel and give them treats. Like I don't even think that's a time thing. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I have five minutes to get out the door. No problem. But turns out it takes longer than that. Yep, totally. Um, I wanted to go back to use the word earlier of courage. Mm. So as a a means to managing mental health, how do you think courage or taking small steps of bravery can help? Hmm. Well, most importantly is you have to have safety to reach Hmm. out. So I don't, like for those that feel like they don't have safe spaces to be vulnerable, please honor that. Hmm. Because most important thing is that you have a safe, supportive environment or person to reach out to. Because the last thing you want to do is be in a wound or be vulnerable, put it out there, and to be rejected, shamed, guilted. And so that's going to be traumatizing, which we don't want to reinforce. But if you have supportive person, the capacity when you put it out there to know it doesn't matter what's going to come back at you or the opinions that other may ha- others may have. But I think the more... We are able to be transparent and authentic about our mental states, the more normalized it becomes. Yes. So I think this is key. 
the sharing in a way that feels safe, but also intuitively, you know, is something that you should do or that would would help you. So even if it's like, I'm going to share a post on social media about mental health awareness or like doing small things that feel a little bit scary to you, but also because I think it's in it's in that act of courage mm-hmm. that also builds confidence mm-hmm. and also builds connection. So the the scariest thing to do is often the thing that I try to do <laughs> because it's it's almost like strengthening a resilience muscle in me and and yeah, and building up my own sense of confidence. Mm-hmm. Also, it doesn't need to be like, obviously, we are very public now about our lives, our challenges. And, and that's because we are completely comfortable with it being that way. And for some, it might not ever be a public situation, but just even reaching out to one person might be an immense act of courage. Yes. To Journaling, admit. like writing down a small piece of your story or, or sharing it with one friend or... But even the capacity to admit that you're not okay... Mm. To me, that is the greatest act of courage. Oof. And that, you're right, and that is that is taking off a mask. Yes. Of like, I know I'm supposed to be okay, and I'm not. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the primary step. Because once you say, I'm not okay, there's room to move from there. But so long as we are not able to be vulnerable or honest with ourselves, there's nothing we can do about it at that time. Yeah. And I do think that our society has also, the word brave or the connotation of what it means, like what bravery means has been skewed because to me, being brave doesn't mean like being scared and doing it anyway. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. to me, bravery is, it happens in the quiet moments when you are listening to your intuition and doing something anyways, regardless of what the Mm -hmm. outward outcome is. So to me, an act of bravery is is talking about mental illness publicly. It's, I'm scared to say the wrong thing. It's not comfortable admitting that I've struggled. And yet I know that it's in in taking my mask off and in sharing and in healing myself that makes space for there to be healing in the world. Hmm, that's really beautiful. I do want to also say to my fellow oversharers, because this is my world, this is so normal for me, quote-unquote normal, whatever the hell that means, that being transparent emotionally is is my everyday, all day almost essentially. So I forget sometimes when I step outside of my world that that's not how the rest of the world operates. And there there's always moments in my life where because I've been so quiet or silent about things that I feel like this energy and need to just share everything. And that's great, but not on a first date. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, don't lead with, I'd like to know. (laughs) Yes. Like, I don't think my, on a first date, they need to know my entire trauma history. And (laughs) that's been a learning for me too. So just know that others that may have overshared and may have been rejected around that, know you're not alone. Mm -hmm. And also know that that's okay. Because that's also part of the healing process is you're just desensitizing yourself to that situation and to that story. Exactly. And I keep coming back to this topic of bravery for a reason. I want to ask you, sis, what do you think is the bravest thing that you've ever done? Hmm. It's for me, not any singular event. 
it's a continual practice and it's very much what you said it's it's living in a place where i feel a little bit vulnerable so it's saying something that i know might have a repercussion but it feels intuitively like the right thing to do mm. or the right thing to say i would just say it's it's really trusting and honoring and listening to my intuition ooh which as a society we're told not to do mhm systemically we're told not to trust that intuition we're told to look outside of ourselves and seek answers externally and so that is damn brave mhm and what about for you krista what's what's your brave story um i got chills when you asked that i think for me the bravest thing that i've ever done is left mm. is i think part of the gift in being able to see the good in people is that i hold on to that goodness and i hold on to that potential for too long and ignore the signs or ignore the obvious circumstances of how they're treating me and so the bravest thing i've ever done was leaving my abusive relationship even though it was the hardest thing i've ever done and i'd say the second bravest thing i've done is left an unhealthy work environment so for me being brave is honoring myself before others mm oh beautiful and i want to make a distinction actually because sometimes bravery can be masked so i always say this and pardon my french but there's a fuck it that's self destructive mm. but there's a fuck it that isn't there the fuck it that's self destructive is when you are in a situation and you're like this is going terrible it's it's essentially like inflicting self harm you're almost going into self sabotage yes exactly but then there's a fuck it which it's a a vast fuck it which is a freeing yes. it's saying i no longer am tied to the outcome of this situation and i can't go forward with this and so also to just be it's helpful to just be attuned to what kind of fuck it you're in right and for me because i'm so i overanalyze everything and i consider how my actions are going to impact everybody around me constantly when i get to the fuck it place it is a complete honoring of myself yes and saying at this point i no longer my wellness my sense of self is not tied to however people respond to me to the situation it's it's a yep. re, it's a reclamation actually yes 100% it's a reclamation of self and your own power and uh, i'm not here to prove myself i'm here to be myself that's really beautiful oh it sounds like gabe and bodie have arrived i can hear my dogs barking so we're going to bring them on for a little bit bodie what does mental health mean stay safe and stay good Hmm. It does. It means to stay he healthy in our minds. I didn't know that. Yeah. And when you're feeling sad, what kinds of things help you to feel happy? I hug my Snoopy or my Stuffy. Yeah. You give it a big hug. Yes. And that makes you feel happy inside. Yes. And Gabe, what do you do when you feel sad? I hold one of my crystals. Oh. One of the crystals that Auntie Reese gave you? Yes. Mm. What do you think would make the world a better place? To st stay safe. If we stayed safe, yeah. What else, Gabe? 
Do not litter. Oh, oh good. Excellent. And you are great. And to remind people that they're great. Don't talk to strangers. Just talk to good people you know. That's good advice. Not yep. talk to strangers. I have a question. What do you guys do when you feel really happy and excited? How do you show that you're really happy and excited? I do this face. Oh. <laughs> they can't see you, buddy. <laughs> I roll you to the moon and back. Oh, oh that's nice. good. And what about you, Gabe? You don't know? I am excited to meet the podcast. You are the best in the universe. <laughs> it's and so okay just to be. be. And if you're scared, then just be brave. The end of the podcast, you are excited or sad or happy. Do you like this episode or you like the yes episode we did? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, and, yeah. And you are great and smart and brave and... I hope you stay awake. Hi, my name is Bodie. I hope you stay safe. Hi, my name is Gabe. I hope you have a great day. Audio production by Joel Vargasi at Lewis Studios.